0: All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Jeff. Actually, I am elated because our podcast has lasted longer than the previous Speaker of the House, and we have a new Speaker of the House. <laughs> and uh, one of the things, it's, uh, what is it? I'm just looking at Wikipedia, Mike Johnson. So one of the things that Mike can't even remember his spoke name. about, oh, he's so new, he's so fresh. You know he he just he quoted the Bible in his speech and this sort of this hubbub about like oh the separation of church and state and stuff and it's like you know calm down people like Lincoln was quoting the Bible all the time, it happens in speeches, but but and I will say this there's there is a precedent for for the government acknowledging a religion and sort of uh working around it. And I'll and this is the one of my favorite examples. So we've got election day coming up, and people joke in Virginia now that election day is like 45 days, but you know, November 7th, I believe, this year, um, because it's the first the, the first Tuesday of the month. But the actual rule is that it is the Tuesday preceding the first Monday of the month. And do you know why that first Monday of November? Do you know why that is, Jeff? Because we Catholics celebrate All Saints Day on November 1st. And in an effort to appeal to a particular religious base, in the, in the beneficence, if you will. So the the National Election Day was set to be after a major Catholic feast day at the time so that people could actually show up to the polls and vote. So it's not a sort of establishment of, of state religion, if you will, but it's an accommodation for people's religious faith. And so I think we need to like recognize that people have different religious views. They can acknowledge their religious views in a public speech about a, an organization that is you know, t- technically non-religious, but I think we need to like give people that sort of space. And I think like election day being that sort of that, again, that first Tuesday after the Tuesday after the first Monday of the month is just sort of recognition of like where we are as a country. We're a-, a multicultural, a plurality. And I think that leads really well into our our guest as we talk about why Congress.
0: That's right. And I mean, I I kind of uh, saw the same things that you saw. I-, I read the speech and. The our founders intent was not to keep like real religion out of government, it was to keep government out of religion in a yeah. lot of ways, you know, <laughs> and it's like and and to allow all religions, a space to be as you as you kind of alluded to is like we just need to, we need to give people space to be themselves. And um, that's kind of my big argument with Congress is it's too small. There, it's not a deliberative body, and there's not enough space for the different factions of the United States to be itself. Um, and we'll we'll obviously get into that in a little bit with our uh, our guest Philip Wallach, who wrote the uh, book Why Congress. But we had our we had our Halloween party here uh, yesterday, John. Um, and how does it like? I don't know. For me, it's so weird because I've had this party every year since I was like seven years old and now my kids are doing the same thing that I did, you know, riding on the tr- the the hayride with my, kid, my my dad and all of my friends were kind of in town this year or some of them were in town and they got to meet some of my kids and it's just like their kids look like they used to look and it's just this, I don't know, this really weird but lovely situation I find myself in Um how do you find yourself looking back at all of this stuff and like how life changes? And I don't know. Do you find yourself feeling old, like me? Uh,
1: some days, some days. Um, <laughs> no, I, I went for him this afternoon and I could really only do like two and a half miles. And I was like, I'm I'm kind of tired right now. So
2: <laughs> Sorry,
1: a, a mile mile and a quarter. And then I was like, I'm really tired. So I'm going to run back home. Um, no, it's like I mean I've only been at your your Halloween party for two years, so I'm not I know the history. But my children go to the school I went to. So it's kind of like, I have that sort of sense of like, there's sort of a tradition that they're part of. And then the school had this, this they call a fall festival on Saturday, uh, right before your party. And again, I'm like sitting next to a classmate of mine um, who's a year behind me in high school. And now we both have children in this lower school that we're going through. So it yeah, like, you know, you get older, your kids kind of grow up with you and it's, I just find it wonderful to sort of, A, being able to share those traditions with your children because they're dear to you. And like, it's important to remember where you came from and who you are. And then it's also fun to sort of like see everyone get older and see everyone progress and and uh, just, you know, grow into themselves. So, and that's one of the, the wonderful things about Halloween is it is a tradition that, that we partake in. Um And, and uh, you know, it's the same thing like my, one of my children is a soldier and I remember many years going as a soldier. Um, so it's, it's just, it's fun, fun to reminisce and, um, you know, see them grow up uh, just as we're growing up.
0: Yeah. I, um I got to see some, uh, some of my friends that I haven't seen for a while because of uh they were in town for another reason, but they came to the party and, uh, they were talking about their kids. And I was like, they kind of, you know, like not complaining, but like, just, you know, I guess complain. I mean, let's face it. All of us parents complain, you know, like we're frustrated at our kids. And I said- uh, We
1: we critique our children, but not in front of them. So it it doesn't do it. I said,
0: is, you know, speaking of the child that they were talking about, because they have multiple children, I said, um, do you find that that kid is more or less like you? And uh, they were like, oh, definitely like me. And I said, so do you find yourself getting mad at the child or yourself? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, I'm definitely mad at myself. I know this And like home. I think like I think every parent goes through that moment, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that moment kind of happens between like seven and ten. That's when, like the child, really, like all of your like negative traits that you've instilled on them have like really soaking in. And they've like they've discovered all of their power, but they don't understand any of the consequences yet. So they're just like wielding this power like little tyrants and you as a parent like what are you supposed to do you love them you want to keep them safe but at the same time you want to lock them in a cage and let them be until they know how to behave like a human civilized person but you can't do that so
1: no it's no it's so true because so our oldest started babysitting now and he has a tendency to like kind of scold his his siblings and yell at them and part of me is like this is probably a habit I've instilled in him because I probably scolded him and yelled at him too many times. But I'm I'm having flashbacks to when I was babysitting my siblings and being like, yeah, like it doesn't it isn't as effective as I thought it was, and like I, I got to find a different tack. And I kind of want to be like, you just got to find a different way to like get again, like as we talk about in politics, like you sort of have to like convince people and persuade them and and find the common ground and bring them around and and uh, yeah, you know, um, there's that wisdom that that he doesn't have yet that I wish I could just like. Um, insert into his brain so that
0: i tell i talk to my older kids all the time because they kind of do the same thing like i mean there's always a time where authority has to be reigned right mm-hmm. when it's whether it's in business or uh like team sports or parenting there comes a moment where you have to wield that authority where if if nobody's listening you have to grab their attention i think the difference is is like the child doesn't understand that so the child just yeah. sees the authority being wielded, and they think, okay, anytime I need something done, I wield authority. And you know, I've tried to explain to my kids, I'm like, dad doesn't get upset and like, raise his voice for no reason. I mean, sure, there are plenty of times where dad is just a human being who is flawed, who makes a mistake. But on the majority of times, dad's being thoughtful. He has been patient. He has waited and he's grasped your attention by raising his voice. And he's not scolding you. He's typically giving you instructions on how to do something. It's just all you hear is the loudness. And so that's that's kind of where you go as a child when you're trying to wield authority. And it's like, no, you got to make sure that you're being clear and concise about your instructions. And then if they're being ignored for far too long, yeah, you got to raise your voice to get them their attentions. Um, I mean, my twins are. They're so sweet and so nice. And sometimes I just like, look, you have to listen to me. I'm like, you're just like, we've been going at this for 10 minutes. And, you know, I, I raise my voice and they get a little scared, but I put a smile on at the same time to kind of bring them back to be like, look, I, I scared you. Cause you were just ignoring me. And like, I can't have you keep ignoring me. So, uh, cause got to get this done. You want to go do all these things and mommy and daddy want to make it happen. But like, we're on a schedule. <laughs>
1: That's right. We want to carve pumpkins, but you got to take a nap beforehand. And if you don't take a nap, you're not going to get part of pumpkins.
0: Or eat, or eat lunch. You know, like who thought it was going to be so hard to feed kids? Come on. <laughs> so um, we've got a guest today. All right. We are joined today by a special guest, Philip Wallach. He is a senior fellow at AEI and an author of why congress and he's here today to talk to john and i about just that why congress so philip how are you doing today great thanks for having me with you guys so uh you know john and i we both ran for congress last cycle in virginia um and we we study it regularly we picked up your book and i gotta say it's fantastic the first question i have for you is like what drove you? What was your passion? What was your mission? What you drove you to writing about why Congress?
2: So uh, it's a great question. So I'm not a lifelong Congress scholar. Uh, I'm somebody who thinks of myself as a student of the American policymaking process pretty broadly and and specifically sort of how the separation of powers really plays out in practice. Um, and the reason I've come for the last five or six years of my life to to focus pretty deeply on, on Congress as an institution is uh, I sort of felt like in thinking about what goes wrong with our system, uh, Congress seemed like the wobbly leg of this three-legged stool. Uh, and thinking about why there's sort of why we have a sense that the administrative state does does too much or does the wrong things or is unaccountable and i've my feeling is a lot of that comes back to congress and congress abdicating its proper constitutional responsibilities and um just generally failing to to live up to the role that we need our representative body to play so that said, I'm not somebody who wants to just give up on Congress. I think I think we need we need very badly to think about how we can revive the body and get it working for the American people. Uh if we that's... give up on it, I really think we are giving up on political freedom and that sounds pretty dramatic, I guess, but that's that's what I think. Uh that that Americans' political freedom is really tied up in having this exercise of self-government through Congress. Yeah. Um, and that, that I think a lot of folks who study congressional dysfunction are pretty much ready to give up on the place. They just want to find reforms yeah. that are basically about making it less obnoxious to the rest of the government so that the rest of the government can can do what they think is necessary without Congress bothering it too much. And I think that's totally the wrong reaction it's an understandable reaction but it's it's the wrong way to go so my my book is uh, an apologia for the institution uh because i think that's that's needed and i i think uh, i think even the members themselves need that today
1: yeah no yeah, i you, mean go ahead john uh, so uh, you talk about so this this idea that everyone who's kind of th- studying congress has this idea like they got to get rid of it and so in the in the book you talk about Woodrow Wilson and he comes around and sort of has this idea that we need to fix Congress and he's got sort of machinations for how it should go. And then his, when he becomes president, you note that he kind of changes his mind on that. But um, my understanding, you've, you've kind of have this two ideas are sort of a Madisonian branch or and a Wilsonian branch. And how would you kind of compare and contrast like in the sense that like James Madison, right. obviously father of the constitution and then Woodrow Wilson coming in and trying to reorganize
2: everything. Right, so for me, the distinctive thing about a Madisonian approach is is this r- realization that multiplicity is the defining feature of of republican government, and and understanding the ways in which Congress allows you to cope with that multiplicity. And uh, I think Madison is just such a deep thinker in in thinking about how factions can play off against each other, but also in the process sort of cross fertilize with each other and figure out ways of, of living with each other. Uh, For Wilson, I think the whole idea of multiplicity is basically offensive. Um, You know, there is, he recognizes there is diversity in the country, but we pretty much want to make politics as simple as possible. He sort of, it reminds me of, of people who admire the aesthetics of Apple electronic devices today everything as clean lines as possible sort of simplicity is beauty that's sort of the wilsonian vision and so basically you want to get everything streamlined into very tidy lines of competition between the two political parties let the voters make their choice and then whoever wins ought to be sort of in charge of the government in a very uh, authoritative way they they ought to be able to implement their program and wilson was a, a great admirer of of the uk's westminster parliamentary system uh specifically he was he thought the the prime minister william gladstone was sort of the model of of how an energetic politician should be able to transform a country's government and society and he he wanted very much to emulate that uh earlier in his career he sort of imagined some of that simplifying process happening within the Congress through caucuses in the parties. But as he went along later in his career, he sort of became more and more attracted to the president as the sort of one figure who could really deliver this simplicity and sort of wanting Congress to become the handmaiden to the president because of the president's sort of towering presence on, on the political scene. Um And, you know, I I don't want to deny that Wilson's vision has a lot of attractive qualities about it. I think that would be a mistake. Uh, people are very attracted to this idea that if you don't have simplicity, you can't have true accountability. I think that's wrong, but it is it is understandable. Um, so yeah, part of the point in my book is to argue why, in in America's case especially, we are such a complicated country, so diverse, so many different factions. We really need to allow this ongoing process of of negotiation and accommodation to have a central place in our politics. We can't just expect political parties to tidy up everything for us, um, or in any case, they're not they're not they're not managing that feat in recent years. So yeah,
1: I, I've got a note like about there's a quote or just quoting your book like what would happen to the, the quote mischiefs of faction. Madison's Central Challenge for Republican political life in a system and vision. And so he, I guess, Wilson thinks that in essence, parties will be responsible for taming factions on their own terms before offering up their synthesis for the adjudication by voters. And so I like, I think we see that was the case for probably 10 to 20 years. But in the most recent like decade, it's like definitely fallen off the, off the rails, especially on the Republican side. And I think that seems to be where there's so much dysfunction nowadays. Right. And I think even on the Democratic side, like if you get a small enough cohort and a small enough margin... The party actually can't control their faction and now we're back to sort of the same multiplicity where um, as much as, as the party thinks they control everything like a smaller number of people can throw everything into chaos
2: right yeah I, I mean i think i think the question of the adequacy of our bipolar politics is really at the heart of um this question i mean based i think there are people who think well republicans and democrats they're as different as night and day and uh giving voters that choice is good enough um i think I think it's more and more clear that that's not adequate that that american the American electorate is is dissatisfied with the sort of with the way that these two parties were framing things. I think you already see a lot of ferment, especially on the right um, There's an awful lot of internal disagreement in these parties, and you're starting to see some. Younger leaders coming forward who embody just very different values. Uh, so I think, I think that's sort of the that's sort of the multiplicity of factions reasserting itself and we need Madisonian responses to that problem rather than just digging in our heels and hoping that the existing lines of um, the sort of familiar lines of confrontation are good enough.
0: Yeah. So. When I, uh, when I read this, I, I love the way that you put in the terms the Madisonian and the Wilsonian. I thought it was, it was very modern for like uh, you know, an everyday citizen to kind of comprehend because everybody you – know, how deeply you know government, you kind of know the two names, Madison and Wilson. Um, and I, I couldn't help notice some of the similarities between the Madisonians and like the original rep, uh, Democratic Republicans and then the Wilsonians and the Federalists right? it's It's almost this idea of, like you said, the Madisonians were about the multiplicity of factions allowing them to kind of, like work against each other and for the country. And the Federalists and the Wilsonians are all kind of about consolidated power into the hands of, like, the most virtuous or the most knowledgeable But, you know, that's really hard for citizens to know, right? It, which is. Right um I think, part of the flaw with the system, you know, because right, yeah. all it takes is the wrong
2: people in charge. I think that the Wilsonians want to say, well, of course, there's this common good, and the people in charge are going to ascertain what that's all about, and then go after it. And it does require an awful lot of trust, right? And yeah, I think the Federalists, as you said, were, were very much like that. Alexander Hamilton, was supremely confident that he knew what was good for America, and he was going to go out and do it. But, you know, Madison and and Hamilton's opponents thought, actually, this guy's just selling out regular people's interest to the national bank. Right? That's really what causes the original formation of of this uh, Democratic Republican political party, of which Madison is is really the central leader in the in the House of Representatives, anyway, and. Um. Yeah, you have the sense that, okay, you can say you're doing everything for the common good, but we actually need to contest that we need vigorous contestation over what that's actually all about. Uh, if you just sort of try to say we have an anointed set of guardians who are going to do the right thing, well, Americans are not a trusting bunch of people, It it does <laughs> not, it does not work for us.
0: Well, and so you, you hit on it there, and you talk about it in the book. Where you, you talk about like Madison kind of was the leader of this party in the House of Representatives, right? He saw this overarching federal executive power growing. And he in the response to the growing federal power was a check with the congressional power through the party that he built, right? But and then in the in the book, you kind of you lay this out in the World War II era with Franklin D. Roosevelt in Congress and the way that Congress kind of pushes back. Um, now, they do abdicate a little bit of the responsibilities because nobody seems to want to make really hard decisions in Congress um through the history. Um, but they do push back, you know, at, at some point and kind of like curtail a lot of Roosevelt's really more extreme views. And like, isn't that kind of our pathway forward? You know, as far as like Americans and the powers, and you mentioned it in your opener about how like people just want to get rid of Congress. But Madison saw it right. Congress is the people's power. If you're going to check a bureaucratic executive that's, you know, infiltrating, you know, uh, I don't know, oppressing you or whatever you might call it, then you do it through the House, through Congress.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think in World War II you had a situation where Congress sensed its own limitations, but didn't just recede into the background because of having i mean it's it's true that most legislators just felt like they didn't have a whole lot to contribute to figuring out how to win the war and they probably they were probably right about that uh but in terms of maintaining trust in the government figuring out how we were going to finance this war uh, all all these really important questions how how we were going to deal with you know, massive inflation and rationing and all that, like, those were things that Congress felt like it did have competency to deal with. And it was not just going to defer blindly to the executive, uh, just because a war was on. And um, I think a lot of that history has been forgotten. Um, But yeah, Congress, Congress needs to have confidence in its closeness with the people, right? Mm -hmm. it's, It's, we have every reason to think that, Members of the House in particular are are better acquainted with what the American people really cares about and wants than the president is. The president has a tendency to sort of view everything from 30,000 feet. I I mean, there's some good things about that view from 30,000 feet, and uh, especially for foreign policy and war making like that's probably a better view. Um, But in terms of figuring out like what's actually important to us, what do we need to work on most? that's what you really need closeness to the people for. And and that's what the house has, even today, even as many problems as we have, I, I still believe that members of the house just are much better acquainted with what people in their district think.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was like, an
1: example that you talked about um, sort of pre-World War II in this where you say like, well, there was sort of Congress had this reputation as being isolationist and you kind of, you kind of flip it back and say, no, really, they were just sort of, they were close to the, their constituents and the constituents like why would we be part of this war that's all the way on the other side of the world when we've got all our own problems at home and i think to me that reminds me of sort of the current ukraine debate and probably the israel debate uh israel the israel hamas hamas war debate right now where there's a big push that like the us has to get involved in these wars and i think there are a number of people in congress say like, my constituents are kind of like why should we get involved in this and i remember walking down the hallway uh at work one day um and I was just hearing two people that work in the air conditioning system just kind of shooting the breeze. And one of them was like, yeah, you know, I, they're talking about like, we're sending money to Ukraine and we're not sending money to help people in Florida. Or, I forget what what the current disaster was, but, you know, like we're spending money overseas, but we're not spending money at home. And I think, you know, a lot of people feel that. And I think like, that's where some of this pushback in Congress is where um, I think even there's a, there's a quote in the book, like, we don't want to give a blank check to, you um, to uh fdr and i was like that's exactly what people say now about the ukraine funding and like that's so much like that's congress's responsibility to take that emotion and like bring it up to the appropriate level
2: right no i so i think you know in the case of the late 1930s there was a very very bad hangover from world war one um and you know there was a sense of just total futility when Americans thought about what that war had accomplished or done and why why had they sent these American boys over to be maimed or killed and that was very deeply felt and um, you know so in historical perspective was FDR right to be farsighted and like basically imagine America coming to the aid of 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 Britain and and uh, opposing Hitler, yes, he was. That was that was good leadership. But just because you have a good leadership at the top doesn't bring the people around automatically. You need to actually address people where they are, right? That's sort of the, the key dynamic of persuasion has almost become foreign to people. But persuasion is like the key to Madisonian politics. And persuasion requires meeting the person where they are addressing arguments to them that they will find persuasive, not not just working things out in some rigorous logic that economists or foreign policy gurus will approve of. You actually have to go to people's concerns to where they are. And yeah, I think that's the same situation with Ukraine. I, I personally think that uh, supporting Ukraine is a pretty good investment for America, but absolutely, that case has to be made to the American people against its most uh articulate attackers right Mm -hmm. if if folks think that this is a waste of money or that we're just you know funding some corrupt government like that case deserves to be aired out those arguments need to be heard we need to have that argument and what what's remarkable to me about the ukraine funding is just how little it's really been debated it's so much money that we've sent already and there's sort of an expectation that we do these deals amongst congressional leaders and just hustle a little hustle it through. And meanwhile, concerns that I do think are totally valid and ought to be taken seriously, just get, get uh, glossed over.
0: Yeah. I mean, you you say like Congress or, you know, power or whatever kind of needs to meet the people where they are. And that's, you know, like I, I talk about government as like just a communication structure and like our our Congress is the mechanism that people talk to their power, right? The, the executive is supposed to address Congress, not necessarily the people, because we, there was no television when we were started, first started. Like they worked through the Congress and then the Congress went out to their districts and they communicated back and forth and they brought back right. what the people had to say and they explained what the executive had to say. Well, now the executive kind of circumvents that and FDR did that with his uh, fireside chats. So there is no meeting the people where they are anymore. And then even if you did, we have this really big problem where our districts are way too big. So if you did try to meet the people where they are, you would have just too many people to talk to. You have too much responsibility for the congressperson to communicate back and forth with. And so, you know, back to this like idea of like the Madisonian politics and the multiplicity of factions is like. Congress needs to be a check on the executive and they need to be a large enough body to meet the people where they are and have conversations in the communities in order to bring it back to the body of Congress and actually push back on the executive because they'll have confidence if they actually believe the people are behind them. But right now they can't possibly know if the people are behind them because they can't talk to their district because they're just far too
2: large. I think that's a little bleaker than I would than I would judge things. Uh, um, I agree it would be easier if if the districts were smaller, but I I think part part of the frustration is like how can how can an American citizen in a republic of 330 million people hope to have any kind of meaningful voice at all? Right? There's just kind of this math problem that we're not even related to the number of representatives but just the size of the country right when 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 america got started it had like th- 3 or 4 million people that's that's a huge change right and i do think that like part of the reality of of dealing with politics today is the sense of helplessness or powerlessness that the average citizen even like the average well connected citizen is likely to have um so I, was, I i think i think that's a real issue about just sort of politics in the 21st century it, it's really it's a hard problem uh, well you,
1: there's uh, a there's a sort of an intellectual argument you could bring like that's where you have to bring things down to local level as much as possible and i think part of the problem tends to be like the over federalization of everything i think the state the local and state level are robbed of, of too much of stuff because there's you know the congress puts a program out and says you know you do these things and you'll get some some right. money back, um, and so you kind of you get in this weird cycle where, even though technically the Congress hasn't made any laws about what you should do at a local level, they have these incentives as carrots and sticks that get localities to do certain things. And right. then you your your congressman is even more important because it's this federal funding that now people are used to, and if they don't get any more, it now becomes a burden on the locality that they weren't used to. Um, so I, that's part of the problem, too, I'm like, you know, the subsidiarity versus solidarity, where just trying to put things at that right level um, is is one of the could be one of that fixes where for that one person in 330 million. It's much easier to go to their board of supervisors member that is only representing 100,000 people um, to get what they need done if if there was less kind of of an umbrella over that.
2: I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say that I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. Which is a population of about a million people, and we're just one school district mm-hmm. and one county government, which is very powerful. And I have to say, I feel pretty disempowered within my local government, also, in a way that that's very dispiriting. I'm a um,
0: proponent of uncapping the state houses as well, just FYI.
2: <laughs> well, that I wouldn't. I I mean, I the the state houses are so dominated by one party in in my state that it's like i don't even know what they're up to but it's not it doesn't i don't feel like it's on my behalf really um so yeah i i i'm totally sympathetic to the idea that like smaller smaller units would be better for better for a sense of uh, empowerment better for sort of republican self-government responsibility all all that i yeah like a lot of the christopher lash kind of arguments really resonate with me where he sort of the the point is people become responsible by having power Mm -hmm. you, you don't just need to find the responsible people and then give them power it works the other way around you really need to let people make their own mistakes even uh as a way of 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 educating people in in the the difficulties of, of governance, which are, which are deep and inextricable with the human condition, I suppose.
0: Well, and, you know, uh, kind of this locality thing that John was talking about later in the book, you talk about the COVID situation, and kind of Congress's reaction to that. And I, you know, when I was reading this, I couldn't help and obviously, we lived it, you know, this was only a few years ago. So it's not like the history and the rest of the books, but I couldn't help thinking like, I feel like the states really failed in a lot of ways here. You know, we can blame Congress and we can blame the executives. But at the end of the day, like, I think the states were unprepared. They didn't want to act. And they were just, you know, basically twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the federal, you know, executive and Congress to do something. Um, and isn't that another way that we can check and balance our system so people are more represented?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I... I think that the states often showed kind of a herding instinct where they just wanted to do what the national institutes of health or the standards for disease control or, or whomever came up with, even when there wasn't really any reason to think that those people were doing a very good job. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's like, Oh, there's plenty of blame to go around with COVID. Uh, really no shortage. Um, so I, I agree with you. Um, I think the, my point with Congress is that there were actually some national level things happening um, that Congress really ought to have been grappling with. And really, it just is amazing how little they did. They they sort of acknowledged that there were fights about these things, but they never even made a real try at, at resolving them. Um, and I think they they could have done some good if they had been willing to work through the difficult trade-offs that COVID forced on us. But instead, it was just sort of passivity. We're saying, I'm following the science. No, I'm following the science. These kinds of self-abnegating arguments that just take take the need for judgment out of the situation, even though that's what we desperately needed. So yeah, the the the, the name of that chapter is we needed leadership. They gave us cash. Yeah. And and that's really we really we really needed people at some levels to just take responsibility and to say, I know this is a hard situation. I know that whatever choice I make is gonna have downsides to it. But nevertheless, this is the right thing to do. I mean, I think that's, that's part of the pitch is. that Ron DeSantis was able to make for a little while is that he had done something more like that in Florida for a time and they had sort of it had sort of said we're willing to take the hit because we think keeping Florida's businesses open is important to us, and uh, that that at least sort of seemed like a decision made in in full full consciousness of 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 sort of what was going on. Not not that I would want to defend everything that that he did uh, on that front, but uh, I, I do think that was part of the appeal.
1: Yeah, Well, there was weird like federal aspects too. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of cash that came in, but I I wasn't on on the school board and and, um, there was the sort of this idea of federal conveyances where this like obscure section of federal code, which then became a rule for the CDC to sort of imposing things uh, where you had to have school buses in a certain configuration with masking and things. And so like, it was, it was taking rules in the federal code that, I think were never intended to be used in these ways and then applying them to certain situations. Right. Um, so that would have been a purview of Congress to actually like to right. have a judgment on that and say like, yeah, that's, don't, don't interpret it that way. But, right. but again, like they just sort of deferred everything to the CDC, yeah. to the NIH. Um, and then we got again, like a fight again, like there was no multiplicity. It was sort of a singularity and it was either if you, what you go along with it or you're stuck.
2: Right. And I think
1: having those, Even if if the same outcome had happened, but you had a four debate about it, I think it would have been a much more positive thing. Kind of like what you talked about the civil rights stuff later on in the book.
2: Yeah, there was so much ability to. I mean, they just like threw so much money at these schools Mm -hmm. without even insisting that they be open. Gosh, yeah, it, it's just, I don't even want to, I don't even want to go down there. So you I you mentioned- Too soon, too wherever, soon. So wait, hours, wait. Guys.
0: you mentioned, uh, you mentioned in the book that there is, I, I made a note of it here. I believe there's like, I don't know the dollar figure, but there's like millions or billions of dollars that have been allocated for like educational COVID response that haven't been <clears> spent, <throat> spent yet. And I think you mentioned that like, it's probably just going to get spent for raises for teachers like over the next- course of i don't know 10 or 15
2: right. years or something yeah i think that's a little dated from when i wrote when i was writing um but but yeah there there was all just just enormous amounts of money sloshing through the system and money is fungible like right? it it's like we'll they see. find ways of of taking this money and and essentially making use of it in ways that were never never originally intended so
0: So I have I have an idea to do that, actually, because that's what that's what Congress does, is it takes money that wasn't intended and spends it in other places because it's already been allocated. Right. So, like, one of the big problems, I mean, COVID really, it stunted the growth of a lot of children in their educational lives. Um, But more than that, the growth was already stunted because the system was broken. And if you talk to teachers and administrators, they believe that there aren't enough schools and there aren't enough teachers there are two, the classrooms are too large. So, you know, my idea would be, all right, let's take that money that was for COVID response and let's start building some more schools and hiring some more teachers and let's get the class size down from, you know, 30 down to like 20 or 15 so we can actually like have a conversation with the people in the room again. You know, it's my whole big thing about Congress is like, you just, you have to have small groups in order to have a conversation or a debate. And whether it's in, you know, debate in Congress or listening and asking questions in the classroom, that is important in growth and understanding. So is that like I mean, I'm not a scholar on Congress. Can you do that with the money?
2: I, I think the money is like kind of frittered away by now. Oh I don't, I don't know uh, that it's like there to be spent anymore. <laughs> uh I mean I'd have to talk to my education policy colleagues uh, to 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 be sure about that but that's my impression and yeah i don't know i i i'm sympathetic to what you say about class size but it's it's like it's very very that's a very expensive idea uh well
0: i mean you i people push back on me and say well how are you going to pay for that and i go well like i get it but like if you're not educating the next generation like you're paying for it in the negative you know
2: right. like no I, and I i think that's why like that's why the current manifestation of school choice is just to say like just get just get the cash free away from the system and let people spend the cash and forge their own children's education in some other manner because at some point it just starts to seem like lack of money isn't really the problem it's like this whole system that makes bad use of it is the problem.
0: Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Let's, let's get back to Congress real quick. Cause I kind of <laughs> sidetracked us with education. John and I, you know, are both very involved. Education,
1: in COVID, it all just kind of yeah. like rolls around.
0: Um. So at the end of the book, you kind of lay out three futuristic scenarios, which I thought was very intriguing. And I was curious, you know, you mentioned it's, you wrote it uh, like a year or two ago. Is that correct? You wrote it during COVID, I assume, or a little afterwards. So thinking forward now, like what does and all the information you have since you've written the book and the ideas that you put forth in the
2: book, what does Congress need to do? Like, what's the yeah. first step? Well, let me just lay out the, the three scenarios at the end of the book. They're, they're all sort of I, I took, the, took some artistic liberties and wrote from the perspective of some observers in 2039 Uh, Because that's going to be the 250th anniversary of Congress. And so the three scenarios are decrepitude, rubber stamp, and revival. And uh, yeah, the, the whole idea is that sort of Congress on the trajectory that it's on is sort of more and more marginalized over time. And it can... It can become more marginalized. Still, we we we. It's not like it's uh, reached the end of that path. So it, the first two scenarios really imagine it becoming even less powerful. In the first case, that's sort of by just becoming more of a wreck than it is now, uh, and in the second case, it's by people who are reformers trying to sort of uh, effectively subordinate it to the executive branch. Um, which I think a lot of reformers would like to do. So that's the uh, first two scenarios. And then the third scenario, the revival. So what do we need to get revival of Madisonian politics? That's your question now. So um, I think we need we need a lot of our national politicians to decide that they care more about legislating on some pressing issue than they care about uh Exercising partisan loyalty and framing the next election—that's that's that's the basic key. And I, as much as I would like to think that reform reformers like myself could could change things just by by dint of our lovely arguments, I don't really think that's true. I I think to get to a different dynamic in Congress, you you need the legislators to just buy out of the current models to just say no. I I refuse to be reduced in my station to just being a vote caster who does what the leader tells me to do and uh raises money for the party. I that's beneath my dignity. I am a person of real political ambition who wants to do good for the American people and that means I'm going to go out and solve these problems today not not after the next election. So that's what I've sort of been waiting for and hoping for. Uh, you know, I think it's very interesting for me with that perspective to be watching the drama unfolding in the House of Representatives this year. Uh, I think I think one way to interpret it is that there are a lot of members on the right wing of the Republican Party who feel like they're just not wanting to play this game. On the same terms anymore, they're just willing to smash it all to pieces because they have a sense that it's it's a it's a losing game. And e- even if that means busting up their party and sort of uh, driving everybody up the wall, they just have something has to be different. And I'm not sure I think that they have a very good strategy of how to get from from here to there. But I, I do think that's part of how I understand their motivation. So I actually take what's happening in the House right now as a very positive first step, uh, even though it, it is so messy and uncertain on the ground.
1: Yeah. I when you say I, smash to pieces, do you mean like Congress or just the what you said, like the, the partisan structure part where of well, current it's all like the leader raising money?
2: Yes. The status quo pattern in which the leaders are so dominant. We do so much legislating by deals between between partisan leaders and the rank and file membership is, is sort of reduced to an afterthought.
0: So I um, I agree. I so I, uh, I wrote a piece in The Hill this week about just that and how you kind of break up that structure is going back to that progressive era where everything got messed up is Reed's rules, which really consolidated a lot of power in the House to the leadership. And that kind of helped. The partisan divide. So I think the first step, you know, I wrote whoever gets nominated speaker, the first thing they should do is they should get rid of Reed's rules. They should put the most qualified people on the committees and not just the people of their party. So, and then they should open up actual floor debate and like make it a deliberative body again. Take the power out of the out of the few, you know, really, you know, good campaigners, if you will, the people that raise money and control the system. The the telemarketers. Yeah, take the power out of their hands. And, you know, I think what would happen here is you would immediately get to see who is there to govern and who is there to grift. And then now allow the American people to vote these people out of office and put some better quality people in there that actually want to take time to learn specific issues and write good bills, because, frankly it just doesn't seem like they're interested in it at all and like you said if if we're going to move congress forward we have to break up that partisanness that has just like overtaken the body
2: well let me tell you speaker reed is is really looking at you hard as you as you're saying all this he's right over your shoulder <laughs> in your office um Listen, I, I'm not sure I would put it all the way back to the Progressive Era because part of part of the story that I'm telling in my book is that Congress of the mid 20th century just worked in an entirely different way. We had we had an era of power the the the, the power centers in that Congress were the committee chairs and uh, the the speaker, you know, famous Speaker Sam Rayburn nobody ever nicknamed him boss or czar like they did with reed and cannon right sam rayburn was mr sam he was this guy who was a a masterful practitioner of human relations who got these strong personality chairmen to work with each other and to figure out how this crazy coalition that was the democratic party back then could could hang together um That's just a very different model of how Congress could be. I like getting from here to there would take a lot of steps because right now, chairmen serve more or less at the pleasure of the speaker. And it's not, so it's not just the membership of the committees, it's the chair, it's the chairman. And we have a sense that basically people do get rewarded with chairmanships by how prolific fundraisers they are. So, yeah, I'd like to see that reversed. And and the rules committee itself, the rules committee is sort of the central tool of speaker control of the agenda. Again, going back to look at what the model was uh, in the mid-20th century, the rules committee was independently elected. Uh, it was not just the creature of the speaker. It was something that reflected the diversity of the membership, and the chairman of the rules committee was this amazing powerful figure in his own right that did not just take take direction from the speaker so yeah i'd like to see a devolution of power away from the speaker we need to when we think about how that would happen we actually need to think about not just hoping that the speaker appoints different kinds of people but actually getting the power out of the speaker's hands in the first place writing new rules that means yeah we need to look at you know These steering committees, which are not really very public bodies, they're the ones that make appointments uh, to the committees. Um, We need need to shake those things up. I I like ideas to shake up the way committees work and the way committees are able to get things to the floor. So some people say, hey, what if the committee's members got to elect their own chairman? Um, I like reforms that say, what if committees are guaranteed that if they can do a bipartisan bill, in their committee, that it's definitely going to get votes on the floor. But that's not the case today. You can do a, you can work really hard and write a great bill in committee that gets eighty-five percent of the members on the committee to all agree that this is a good bill. And there's no guarantee it will ever get a vote uh, if it doesn't suit the speaker's agenda. And that's that's really trouble. We we don't have the incentive. So once you once you think that your bills that you work on in committee aren't going anywhere, well, then you better spend your time doing something else if you're if you're smart. So we need to shift that we need to sort of, yeah, we need to reward reward the workhorses and not the show horses so much. Um, So what would I mean,
0: I, I propose that election or like campaign finance reform should be a big part of that. I mean. At the end of the day a lot of the reasons we have people that are partisan or kind of like all of the incentive is about fundraising and how you get the power is like well we have to take that away like there, that shouldn't be the focus point i mean when i ran for congress everybody kept on trying to tell me like we well, have to do this you have to do this you have to do this and i'm like i'm pretty sure i have to study history and understand law like i feel like that's what my job is and i need to like know my community so that's what i focused on running for congress but at the end of the day, they're right. If you want to be in Congress, you you don't have time to do any of that stuff. The only thing you have time for is to fundraise and campaign. Now, once you get to Congress or maybe you studied before you got there and you were kind of prepared, but from the people that I spot, I talked to, the staffers, the few congressional people I've spoken with, you don't have time to study and read law or read the bills that they pass. You right. have to continuously campaign right. and so and continuously fundraise. So, like, if we want a body that functions, that's able to uh, debate these complex issues, don't we need to get that off their plate? Like, I tell my wife, like, I wore a flannel for two straight years because it was one less thing that I needed to think about. And now that I'm having to wear it, I finally committed to wearing something different. And I was complaining the other day. And I was like, babe, I'm just sick and tired of dressing. And she goes, you've been out of a flannel for a week. And you're complaining already. I'm like, look, it's just one extra thing that I don't want to have to deal with. And it's same thing with with Congress, people into my community. they're like, "Are you going to run for Congress again?" And I go, "Not if I have to beg people for money. I'm not going to run. I just don't that's that's not how the system was designed. I don't want to have to be a panhandler to be a leader in my community
2: uh, i have i've I've never really been a campaign finance guy. Uh, it's just I don't know why that that's writing this book has made me somewhat more sympathetic to the idea that this is a problem that has to be addressed and i think you put your finger on it which is the 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 time piece of it uh it's it's kind of a destructive arms race that everyone is locked into and nobody can opt out of unilaterally so we need to get people out of it all at the same time and it would just seem like an enormous gain to the institution's ability to function if we could just say all these hours that you're spending on this all the time how about you spend them doing doing the work of the american people that's very very attractive to me i don't know exactly how to implement it um i think um persuasion yeah the, the more the more we could lock members in rooms with each other um away from cameras away from their staff even just say I actually think the members if if you gave them a chance they would do a lot of good work
0: I agree with that
2: um, and they, they the system is kind of designed to systematically deprive them of the chance which is kind of crazy
0: yeah I have a I mean I I view all this from the outside and kind of reading history so like I don't have any inside knowledge of a lot of people but just from my like understanding of human nature and how people behave, my assumption is that like 70% of people in Congress really want to do something great and they love their country. And the other 30% are, have control of the system and are doing what they're doing <laughs> with it. And and like, but that that is what happens when you have a republic that has concentrated power is like that power is going to continue to get concentrated and it's going to be, it's going to be in the hands of the wrong people when you don't have a deliberative body a large enough deliberative body to diversify that power. And so I just think it's, it is, it is the nature of the beast that we've created and we just have to work on systematically changing it um, through, you know, doing the job that we were supposed to do. Congress was supposed to apportionment, you know, like uh, repeal the, or write a new apportionment bill, expand the house out, get a speaker in there that, uh, you know, doesn't focus that it, with rules that aren't partisan. You know, make it a more deliberative body, write some campaign finance reform. I mean, yeah, maybe it'll take 10, 12 years, but you'll ha- you'll see a dramatic difference in the way that the body functions because it'll be a communication piece again. Get the media out of the way. You know, if you make the district smaller, the representatives can spend time actually in their community. If they're not having to campaign as much, they have more time to spend in their community. Um, and I just, you know, I think it's kind of common sense reforms that we can make that would you know move us forward
2: i'll give you just some conversational pushback on the on the larger size i i do think there's there's an issue of i mean if you had a hundred thousand members of the house of representatives then I think if you throw a number out there like that, I think to me it's obvious that like you no longer have a body that could be based on personal relationships between these legislators at all right, you just they they can't hope to know each other. They would have to be running everything through layers of hierarchy, and so you would actually have a body sort of more dominated by a small, a small sliver of the membership um and so that seems pretty obvious to me and i think then the question is like at what numbers do you start getting into those problems very profoundly and, I, and madison talks about this in the federalist papers he says at some point if you have a large enough representative body it starts having the problems of the mob essentially right. well and i i think for for me i i i worry that like Getting back to anything like the district size we had, uh, you know, in the 19th century, would would cause us to have a body that that would just be so large that it would be mob-like. Um, I think knocking us knocking us down to 500,000 members per district instead of 750,000 would leave you with a body that maybe isn't so different in in its dynamics than the one we have now. That seems like an experiment that I'm not, I'm not against trying. Uh, that's
0: that's my proposal. My proposal yeah. would be to write a new apportionment bill for 2030 and where we would basically just cut our districts in half. So they would be about, they would, they would go down to like 400 and something thousand. You would expand the house from 435 to 870. Right. Um, now there's, I think Daniel Allen wrote a piece in the Washington post that explains where you can actually fit, this number of people in the house, you can fit up to like 1,100 or so. And so, you know, because that's the first question that people ask me, well, where would they sit? And I go, well, you know, that's the last thing I care about is where they sit, right? (laughs) Put them in a hotel together. (laughs) You know, I don't care. But like you cut the districts in half, it becomes more manageable. It will be easier for somebody like me or John to run for office. It would cost less, right? You would get a more representative body of the people because at the end of the day, part of the reason that congress fails is it, you regular people cannot run for office there is a massive wealth barrier between you as a citizen and your power and that's not how the body is supposed to be so simply by you know spreading it out it'll be a little bit easier it'll still take a little bit of money but middle class uh husbands and wives will have the opportunity to run again and win office
1: well if i may like i think you talk in the beginning about sort of the origins of parliament as a whole. And we think about parliament now, it's like 600, 700 members. I think um, that's something to consider too. Like <clears throat> there are big deliber- deliberative bodies that are able to kind of get things done in terms of like, they, they do stuff in Britain. So I, I, I think there's, there is precedent that you can um, actually have a big body that can do, do some kind of deliberation. Now, I do agree with your point that if it gets too big, you sort of have like almost middle management layers where, and I think what yeah, like what we have now with this sort of, there's the speaker, there's the majority leader, minority leader, there's the whip, all sorts of sort of leadership positions that sort of manage people. And I think you, you might get more of that, but I think having more of a ruckus would would give us that multiplicity that is, that is missing and, you know, and more of the ferment that it's kind of missing too. Like it, it is so stayed between like, it's the Democrats versus Republicans. And what's what is so remarkable about the speaker fight is that there were eight people that were willing to buck their majority and sort of like mess things up. And that's so rare. And I think, you know, it, it might be better if there's more of that.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think what was remarkable in the in the playing out of this drama was was also after Jim Jordan got the got the uh the nomination of the conference that then these 20 to 25 members were willing to buck that decision also so we started seeing it wasn't just the most uh far right eight who were willing to do it or something it was it was a, a larger group who was starting to say hey we're just not going to play along as, as a unified team anymore. And I think from, from the Republican party's internal perspective, this is a <laughs> a big disaster uh, and they're really have a lot of troubles um, sort of putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, but yeah, from the body's perspective, I do think, yeah, seeing this kind of willingness to chart a new, path seems very healthy
0: so uh yeah, so in, the, in, 20,
1: in 2024 when the democrats have the majority you get aoc who has a motion to vacate and uh, gets you know there's no speaker fight in the democratic we'll see the flip side of that that's
2: could that's could could be right yeah i mean I'm... nancy pelosi was was a towering figure and i don't know that there's any reason to suppose that hakim jeffries can just somehow effortlessly inherit that um Mm i think i think that they are they have plenty of their own internal difficulties that uh it's going to be hard for them to
0: so i uh i'm i tell people all the time that the two-party system has already failed it's just that nobody else has seen it yet and (laughs) that's because i read history and i i know how these things play out and i'm telling you both the republicans the republicans have been fractured through trump and the Democrats are going to go through the same thing, and I think the American people are fed up, and I think that it's only a matter of time before something pushes that change. I don't know what it's going to be, right? Um, I'm working towards some sort of goal to to get that, uh, you know, a third voice in there, just somebody. But um, I, I think that the the divisions have already been wrought, and. That those eight people that kind of dissented and then the 20 people that dissented as the Republicans against Jordan, like all it would have taken is a really highly thoughtful, charismatic individual in the room to bring somebody around to the table from the Democrats to get a a nomination of a speaker that was going to focus on reform of the body of Congress, because at the end of the day, that's what we need. We need congressional reform. Um, it needs to be a body that's deliberative and it needs to be a body that can check the executive. Um, so people have power, as you mentioned, at and your opener. If we just get rid of Congress, where does the people's power go?
2: Yeah, I I I, I share your um I share the sense that this were there were a lot of tantalizing possibilities in the last month that didn't get realized. Um I do think it's easier. It's easier to imagine again some kind of bucking the current system if you have a particularly a particular policy goal you're trying to achieve and not just reform for its own sake. So I go back to this famous moment in 1910 quite a lot, where um, the, you know Reed's successor as the leader of the Republican Party back then was was a man named Joseph Gurney Cannon. And I really would encourage people to learn about Cannon. He was a a really fascinating figure. Um, But he was sort of led to his party with an iron grip. And eventually, the progressive Republicans joined forces with Democrats to break break his power. Uh, And they did that not just because they were fed up with being um, bossed around, but because they wanted to pass some railroad regulations that cannon did not want to pass and that that was so important to them i mean the railroads were such a monstrous important industry it's hard for us to imagine today how how important they were to the country but uh it's like today's big tech that's what it is well maybe so i I say it all Um, the time yeah i mean there are certainly a lot of interesting left-right collaborations about about what to do about Big tech. Um uh, I I find those pretty intriguing. Um but so far they're not the kinds of things people have been willing to buck their party to do. They're sort of sensitive what about, feelers.
0: What about immigration? Because you mentioned you mentioned immigration yeah. in the book and kind of how it's been stalemated. You know, there's been right. some progress, but then it falls apart because of the party structure and it doesn't get done. And John and I were talking about it on the podcast a few weeks ago. I mean, this is a big problem. Like, maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's the the thing that's beside reform that makes that drives the force. Yeah, somebody to come I, up with a real good plan. That's
2: that seemed like the most likely candidate to me. But it is kind of amazing how how successful the two parties seem to be in just transforming this into a somehow neatly polarized issue. It's it somehow seems less cross cutting than it did. It, Bernie Sanders running for president in twenty sixteen was kind of skeptical of immigration um that was one of his differences with with Hillary Clinton, but that that kind of that kind of dissent in the Democratic Party has largely been squashed. I feel like in recent years. I don't know you hear Mayor Eric Adams getting standing up and talking about what a disaster having this wave of refugees come to New York City is you do yeah you do feel like this is such an important issue it's so disruptive people have such strong feelings about it maybe it can shake things up so yeah i I would say i think that that's in some ways seems like a, a place to to watch um but uh but i you know i will say the the practitioners of the current model are good at what they do they're good at keeping people locked into their battle lines um they're, they're in, that that's kind of the thing that surprises me most about american politics year after year is just how good they are at their jobs um at sort of keeping people feeling like they have to just fall back onto their part of their party's uh line um I, i've never been there myself I, i've sort of felt pretty alienated from from both parties my entire adult life um and I know there's lots of other Americans like me, but but we're sort of uh, not assertive enough to, to, to call the shots at this but, point.
0: But I mean, what I tell people, I, I literally I spend most of my days just like talking to random strangers in my community. Like <laughs> I work only in the office for like the first four hours a day. And then I go to a coffee shop or a brewery and I sit and I just talk to people. And I hear that same thing for so many people. Nobody yeah. like there are so few people. Seven hundred fifty-six thousand people in the district ten, and what I found is there are about twenty thousand Republicans and Democrats. Everybody <laughs> else is on an independent, right? Oh well, yeah. And I tell people, you're the majority. Like you can be sort of the majority. Like like all it takes is some coalescing body, some organizing body around the the people that are disenfranchised by the Republicans and the Democrats, and there is your big change. And I think you know that's what principles first is trying to do that's what Ford party is trying to do my argument with those two bodies is they're doing it the same way they're doing it from a top-down structure if you want to make real change you have to do it from the bottom up and that's the madisonian multiplicity of factions that really makes the difference so
2: you know yeah I i will i mean i will say you know Obviously, there's just like structural things about about the money, but also just about ballot access today that make it so hard for any outsider group to gain any traction, right? When we look back to how did the like, how did the Whig Party go extinct in the 1850s? And we got the rise of the Republican Party, but there was like a lot of we had the American Party, there was like a lot of weird stuff going on. And part of the story is that parties could literally print their own ballots and distribute them to their supporters back then so you would come to the polling place with the ballot that your party printed for you and you would drop it in the box such that that's it just it's a totally different model on on how how people can enter into the political system and uh so yeah i'm pretty down on how hard it is for people to to break in to the to the system today i I feel like that is a basic sort of structural barrier to competition that obviously the two parties like and the rest of us should be working to change Uh, i think i I think the trouble with mobilizing this group is that they're right the, the thing that's the strongest in american politics is negative polarization it's not so much that i feel close to the republican party I hate the Democrats so much, <laughs> right? And I, I think, so just because there's this huge body of people out there who don't like either party, that doesn't mean that they could all get along together. Um, and I think, I, I, do, I do share your sense that there are some real opportunities there, but I think it's uh, just thinking about all the disaffected people and imagining them all getting together maybe skips a couple of steps. Yeah. No, it's so
1: true. I was watching a TV ad yesterday, and this friend of mine is running for office who was the year ahead of me in high school. Like, the ad was saying that he's going to put doctors in jail. And I was like, I don't think that's true. But, but like, it's just it's total negativity about everything. Um, you know, very little positive.
2: That's an interesting platform.
1: <laughs> that's new to me.
0: Um, well, Philip, I, I really appreciate you joining us. This has been fa- fantastic. I've looked forward to this all week. Um, I've like I said, I read your book this week. I was – you wrote in another book too. Where is it? It's over here. Congress Overwhelmed. I think you participated in that book, right? You wrote a chapter yes. of that? Yeah, yes, so um, it's fantastic. Before we leave, I want to ask you kind of a lighthearted question. It seems that you you obviously study this stuff. You've studied history. Who's your – like? who do you admire in our history? Like United States history, like what is a leader that you admire? And why do you admire him?
2: Oh, that doesn't seem so lighthearted to me. That seems. It's fun. Like now we're getting to the crux of the matter. (laughs) Um, Great question. I tend to, I tend to like people's stories that are a little bit uh, unusual. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of people worth admiring. I, I have. I have a lot of congressional biographies. It's not the shelf that's behind me on my camera. I have a different bookshelf over here that's full of my Congress books. One I like is this guy, uh, Senator Mark Hatfield, of uh, of Oregon. Somebody most people don't remember today. He was a long time Republican senator, and uh, he cast. He was the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. For the, in the senate in in the 104th congress that's after the 94 midterms and he ended up casting like a deciding vote against a balanced budget amendment which was like a, a deeply a deeply unpopular vote and um, like just learning the story of why he did that he did it out of like a deep conviction that that the amendment that was actually before them just wouldn't work and it was just going to be a big governance disaster and he was willing. And he had somebody who had said that he wanted a balanced budget amendment in the past, but when it actually came time, and this was the amendment that they were voting on, he thought it couldn't work. And so he, there were all these members who wanted him thrown out of the party after he cast this vote. Um, but he, but he did it. So I, I don't know Congress is a is a place. I, I mentioned this in the book. Congress is kind of a place that's a little bit hard to tell stories about it's hard to find heroes because the nature of legislative work is so uh there's so many choices and so many relationships that go into it so it's not just like a tidy a tidy narrative where sort of your he- mr smith goes to washington is like not really to the point because it's like this guy just shows up and makes everything change all of a sudden but that's not really how a lot of a lot of folks who ought to be our legislative heroes really operated like they went in there and they formed these relationships over decades. And, you know, some of them, like a lot of Republicans from, from the mid 20th century who are interesting figures, they like labored their whole careers in the minority. Like there's a guy, uh, a house member from New York who I admire a lot named Barbara Conable. Uh, and he, he ended up being the ranking member of the ways and means committee Um that was sort of where he topped out in the 1980s uh, because Republicans didn't have the majority until after he left Congress. But um, yeah, I try to, I try to find stories like that. I I think, I think Congress is a place where people exhibit a, a, a lot of really admirable characteristics and we, we need a political culture that digs that up and brings out, it's so easy to tell stories about presidents and like, it's, um, I I'm as attracted to those stories as anybody else, but I have the sense that part of part of a project that's worth doing is just trying to like raise people's awareness of an interest in the, 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 the stories of, of Congress, because I think those are severely neglected in our sort of collective memory.
0: That's awesome. I love it. I mean, that's what I'm all about. I, I find it, I read presidential biographies all the time. It is hard to find, any type of biography about somebody like that you know um so the fact that you have and you've put into a book in a lot of ways is awesome um i really admire that and i think you know i I mentioned i talk to people in coffee houses and breweries and they are all looking for answers they they watch the news and at the end of the day they're scared a little bit and so what i would recommend to them is read this book at the end of the day, like seriously, read the book. Like it, you know, between this book and that book right there, um, Acts of Congress. I mean, they're two really well-written books that um show, you know, this one, your book, kind of shows the history of how Congress has evolved and shaped and you know, some ideas to like reform it or make it a more uh, functioning body. And then that one back there kind of show it just tells you the real life story of how dysfunctional it is. And so you can see all the flaws. So you can work to this one to, to like make it better.
2: Is that <laughs> had, the one about Dodd-Frank? Yes.
0: Have you read it? Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I read it the week before, um, yeah, but so I was, was, I was blown away. <laughs> I mean, again, live through it, but, you know, I was in my early 20s when that happened. So I really wasn't paying much attention to it. <laughs> I was just glad that my business didn't shut down during the economic crisis of 08. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I can wave my other book at you too. Oh, you got another book. I wrote another book earlier. It's called To the Edge Legality, Legitimacy, and the Responses to the 2008 Financial Crisis. Ooh,
0: so- I'll have to get that one. That one plays right into what I'm reading about.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I uh, have, have things to say on that. So maybe you'll have me back someday and we'll <laughs> chat about that.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, John, anything before we get out of here?
1: No, again, thank you, Philip. I love what I've read so far. And it's, um. I, I will say my favorite part, you know, not just the, the beginning, but this idea of like Parliament, you know, we think about Parliament so much, and it's just sort of this sort of french portmanteau of sort of people speaking together and that is so much of what's missing from congress is again like representatives actually talking with each other and i think if more people realize that i think we'll we'll have the reforms that we all kind of desire
2: all right well thanks so much for having me guys this has been a great a great conversation i really appreciate it thank you
1: thank you
0: all right that was a wonderful interview um John, uh, any final thoughts?
1: Jeff, everyone who listens to this podcast has to read this book, Why Congress by Philip A. Wallach, our guest today, because he just like, you know, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, I guess for like a year together, but we had these thoughts for a while. And then to have someone else independently corroborate everything, it's just like, you know, it's kind of like, it's like calculus, you know, it wasn't just Newton that invented it. There were other people at the same time inventing it. So like, we're all, realizing there are problems and there are solutions. So I, I can't, I, I can't recommend this book enough. Um, it's got a great like historical perspective and then it's just going kind to of, like practical at the end. So I totally recommend everyone else picking up a copy, reading it. You will, uh, you'll love it.
0: Absolutely. Um, once again, definitely go pick up his book, uh, why Congress um, and read it, share it, talk about it. Right. Instead of getting in fights with your uh, neighbors and friends at Thanksgiving in December over, you know, different Republican and Democratic talking points. How about, you know, diving into the history of Congress and talking about congressional reform to move this forward? I don't know. Just an idea I have. Maybe a little less uh, fighting, a little bit more debating at uh, at your uh, mm-hmm. local or uh, holiday traditions. Um also, I was lucky enough to be published in both Newsweek and The Hill recently. So if you have an opportunity, go uh, check out those articles. Click on them because, you know, clicks get you paid, right, John? <laughs> you got it. I want to be. Not if you're, not, not if you're fat, an op-ed
1: yeah. writer. You don't get paid for if you're an op-ed writer. But we'll, we'll put the links <laughs> in the show notes so that everyone can read them. And we'll get Jeff published in more places.
0: Absolutely. So, and uh, remember always, like subscribe, and share. Peace and love.